We've got a real treat tonight. I happen to know uh, both of our guests personally and have had uh, the pleasure of uh, working alongside uh, them and studying under them. And so I'm just really thrilled. So I'm going to start with Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards, who is the yeah. Dean of North Park Theological yeah. Seminary. Uh, he is a, Yay. yeah, that's right. Yeah, my Yay. alma mater. And uh, he is a phenomenal scholar, New Testament scholar. He is also a former church planter and pastor, mm -hmm. pastoring churches in the DC area in New York, mm -hmm. the Twin Cities, and now he's in Chicago. And mm -hmm. so we are just delighted to have him with us. He is a wealth of knowledge and a, a, a phenomenal scholar, particularly uh, in the New Testament and in many things, and comes with lots of practical experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, Dr. Dr. Edwards, yeah. it's very good to have you with us. Tonight. My Thanks goodness, I really appreciate that introduction. That's really kind of you. I, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, we're glad to have you. And then uh, Reverend Dr. Soon, you're, you're both Reverend Doctors, by the way, but Reverend Dr. Soon Chan Ra, one of my former professors at North Park, now teaching mm -hmm. out at Fuller, uh, also a former church planter and pastor uh, in the Boston area, and you served uh, at North Park Theological Seminary for many years. Now you're at Fuller. You are, you're, I should have said this about you, Dr. Edwards, well, you're both prolific authors and writers, well-renowned mm -hmm. well, well in that regard. Uh, and so... Uh, Dr. Ra uh, teaches on evangelism and multi-ethnic church and has written uh, some phenomenal books uh, on many topics, including on lament and the prof prophetic lament and um, on repudiating the doctrine of discovery and all sorts of, uh, of topics of, of, of great interest uh, and need for the church. And so right. we're just delighted to have you with us tonight. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Great to be with you all. Thank you. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we will get started now with our uh, our initial conversation here. All right, I'm Scott Rice, uh, and I work for High Rock, and my work is in Theology Lab. Uh, I'm going to get us started with uh, this question. Right, as Christians, we look to the Bible uh, to inform you know all aspects of our lives. Um, but what is it that makes money so uh, kind of special? Like, is there is there something particular about money in the Bible that would draw us to look uh, to look there and to ask some questions? Uh, Dean Edwards, uh, Dennis, mm -hmm. would you go first with yeah. for us? Sure, sure. I'm I'm happy to try to take a stab at that. Um, I'm I'm not going to say any uh, subtly. Um, passive aggressive things about my friend Sung Chan leaving North Park to be at Fuller, but I'm really glad to be with him on this <laughs> in this webinar. Um, you know, you said it already, Scott, that uh, Christians look to the Bible for all aspects of their lives to try to figure out, negotiate how to do in the world, how, how they can live. And, uh, and there's a lot that's there about money. And we want to be um, as, as, uh, consistent with what we see in the scriptures even today you know many years later and centuries later afterwards to see how how those principles apply in our lives now so i think and, and we spend so much of our lives working making a living you know trying to make some money that that it makes sense that we are paying attention to what the bible says about money about wealth about a work about how we live all those things i think so yeah i would say the bible is uh, is kind of um we, we see it as helping to lay a foundation for how we make those kind of decisions about money and life and work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Sung Chan. 
Sure. I just noticed in the comments that somebody says I look like Appa from Kim's Convenience. So I'll take that as a very high compliment. <laughs> he's a he's a good looking guy, Appa from uh, from Kim's Convenience. So again, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Um, I think when we talk about issues like money, uh, there are certain things that kind of get under our skin. Uh, it gets mm -hmm. under our um, our surface. Um, and the reason I think is because it's so close and personal. And so much mm -hmm. of our formation around money um, is a lot of it is out more sometimes more out of our lived experience than maybe even scripture itself. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I grew up uh, poor in inner city Baltimore. Um, I grew up on food stamps and I grew up um, on the, the kind of the free lunch program because our family was poor. And so during that time when my mom who was a single mom raising, um, uh, you know, uh, four kids in an inner city neighborhood, um, there was a narrative about her that got played out in the culture. Uh, she was called a welfare queen. And so that begins to shape how one views money, power, how the narratives around money are formed, because you're seeing this in a very real and personal way. It's impacting uh, how people view my mom, how people view me and my family, uh, especially as a little kid. And so the, there's something very personal about some of these categories. And I think money falls into that category. And maybe without realizing, so much of our formation around these kinds of issues is much more culturally shaped and driven maybe by mm. our story yeah. and maybe less by scripture. And that's why scriptural studies on this is so important. Yeah, well said. Well, I appreciate both of those things. I love this idea of thinking a little bit about kind of our own how our own experiences shape our relationship to money. This is such mm -hmm. a, a like a, a personal in that sense, I kind of mean meaningful topic. Um, yeah. Our first thing that we're going to go to uh, is this this being a conversation around the Bible and money. Um, I'll reference some passages. I'll like just briefly kind of say what they are. But if you're kind of tracking at home or watching this on YouTube or following the podcast, you can kind of look at these maybe a little more closely. Um, our first one comes out of uh, Acts chapter two in the New Testament. Mm. Um, I think, you know, for I, I know both of you well enough and myself here to know that we've had at least some relationship to the evangelical world that tends to look at scripture uh, and uh, in an individual way, this is a passage that gets us thinking much differently about uh, mm. what community is and, and how money might work in community. Um, so thinking about this passage or passages that are like it, uh, what does the Bible have to say about money and our social relationships, you know, about money and, and being in community together? Well, I, I'll take a, a stab real quickly. I, you know, Sung Chan, you were talking about um, your, your, your family background and and how that kind of gets woven into how we think about money. And I would say, yes, yeah, same, same here. And it's also um, the, it contributes to how we think about scripture. I mean, my, uh, my perspective as an African-American, I might, I put my lens on certain aspects, you know, certain verses and ideas in the scripture, maybe in a way different from somebody else. So my, my place at it, you know, my, my social location, we call it in scholarship, right. Kind of, informs how I'm thinking about Bible passages. And in that one, you know, there's this beautiful picture of communal life where people are sharing that, that Acts passage you mentioned, and people are eating together. They're moving from, they're going from house to house and breaking bread and, and, and devoting themselves to scripture and prayer. And they make sure that each other, each other's needs are taken care of. And, uh, and that sound, that sounded so beautiful to me. It made me think about how, uh, in some immigrant communities or even in um, in African-American communities. And our story, of course, a little bit different there. But 
we 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 wanted to make sure everybody was doing as well as they could you know and our church became a, a hub of activity we wanted to make sure people were were managing well we would give people ideas about you know how they might find some scholarship money for their kids if they're going to school or we you know kind of where who's giving out the free stuff i mean where, where you might find resources you know so this idea of helping each other out was built in there and i think of this passage in a similar way yet I heard a pastor say it was, you know, it was uh, communism, you know, that everybody's, you know, that, that, and he said this in a, in a church that my wife and I were at, and he said, that's why the Lord had to break that up. That's why the persecution had to come to break this up. And I thought, my goodness, it was such a beautiful picture of fellowship, of true koinonia, which by the way, that term koinonia actually has um, economic implications to it. The idea of sharing, sharing resources even. And it's, it's no surprise that it shows up several times in, in Philippians, a passage where where Paul talks to the people about having helped him out financially. So this idea of partnership and sharing is a very um, biblical and communal and uh, godly way of thinking about our resources, sharing. So anyway, hopefully that's getting at what you're asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah appreciate, I know, appreciate that. Dennis, that's, that's, that's um, that image that you mentioned earlier about how um, like uh, African American churches, Latino churches, Asian Asian churches. I'm thinking about my background mm -hmm. in the Korean mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. You will oftentimes see the sharing of resources uh, because of the highly communal nature of these church communities. Yes, right? yes. Not, it's not individualistic. You're kind of in the same social setting. Uh, yeah. The neighborhood-based churches, uh, the immigrant churches. There's a lot of commonality, and because of that, there is that sense of sharing resources in common which is not a communist, socialist, capitalist <laughs> thing at all. It's just right. a Bible thing. And that's right. where you know, the Bible kind of uh, supersedes all of these other uh, uh, paradigms because you know, it, it kind of defies the label that we've kind of put yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, but in, in one of my books, I actually do an exegesis on Acts uh, chapter 2, verse hmm. 41 through 47. Verse 41 uh. is oftentimes left out of this passage, uh. the passage. But if you look at that passage, mm -hmm. 41 begins with the growth of the church and 47 closes with the growth of the church. And what I studied on this was the structures. Mm -hmm. And uh, this actually comes from the work of Nils Lund, who was a very well-known New Testament mm -hmm. scholar at mm -hmm. North Park Seminary. Mm -hmm. And Nils Lund talks about chiastic structures. Mm -hmm. And what you see in Acts chapter 2 is a chiastic structure. And usually the chiastic structures indicate that what is on the outside of the pericope and what is on the inside of the pericope actually have a relationship. Mm -hmm. The outside is usually the effect and the inside is usually the cause. Mm -hmm. The outside parameters of this pericope, chapter uh, 2, verse 41 and 47, is growth of the church. In the middle of this, and you see it actually develop inward and outward, the chiastic structure, uh, in the middle of it is the self-sacrificial living of the church. They sell all that they have and give to the poor. And so most people have not made that connection or corollary <laughs> that um, how do you want to grow a church? Oh, well, you know, big parking lots, clean bathrooms, you know, uh, bigger sanctuary, better media presentations, you know, the pastor that preaches better than the one we have right now. Those are the, <laughs> the, the, the remedies or our formulas for how we grow a church. Well, the only place actually in the Bible that actually has a comment on church growth is this passage right here. And <laughs> guess what? It talks about uh, sharing wealth, sharing resources. Wow. And so you see here this both end of like, yeah, there's a personal responsibility, but mm -hmm. there's a corporate sense of that as well, that the community is doing this together. And yeah. it really 
work unless the community is doing this together. So I love in this passage how we're seeing the challenge of, no, it's not just about individual wealth and individual accomplishments and the like, but it really is how uh, that is serving the, the gift of the community and how the church and also how it ties in with uh, when you demonstrate the gospel in this way, when you demonstrate the gospel by caring for the poor or by living out the gospel of care for the others, that that's, that's really how the church grows. And so there's mm -hmm. a ecclesial benefit for some of our uh, conversations we need to have on wealth and money. I, I really appreciate that. I had not really paid attention to the 41 and 47 uh, uh, chiastic structure, structure there. I see somebody in the comments is explaining chiasm, which I think you could even think of as, as symmetry is probably a good way to say it. It's got yes. one and one and then in the middle. So that's that's really helpful, Sunshine. Thank you. Um. I want I want to I want I want to use this example to help us think a little bit about biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. So um, the question is, uh, what role does you think Acts two play in kind of how the how our church life should be structured today? And here's what I'm thinking: <laughs> like it's mentioned in Acts two, it's repeated in Acts four, but then you don't hear anything about you know the community st being structured this way in the, towards the end of the book of Acts. The Corinthian community looks a little bit different. So like you know. Do we read this passage and do we see a clear model for us today? Do we, or maybe is there something else that like a passage like this is trying to say to us about how we are a community that relates to money and wealth? Any thoughts on that? I, well, a couple of things. I mean, one is, yes, you, you see this model here. You see, you see um, our hero Barnabas live into it very clearly. He's one of the people that does this. He sells his property, gives it to the, lays it at yeah. the apostles' feet. And um, but the fact that you might not see that mentioned every single time is uh, doesn't mean it's not happening, because when you look at the uh, look at the um, letters, right, the epistles, you start to pick up on how the church seemed to be operating with at least some of these values. I, one of the biggest examples, I think, is um, is now you see this influx of Gentiles coming in right with Paul's ministry. And Paul seems to want to build some cohesion there i would say that's true in all of his letters pretty much but but in you see it specifically in like romans and first second corinthians where he's taking up a collection right he's taking up this collection among all these gentile churches that he wants to take back to the jerusalem to jerusalem to the mother church if you will that, that's that's a, a sweeping model of this very thing he's he says and, and then when he's uh, meeting with um with the apostles in galatians and they and they decide that they're going to do different kinds of ministry, you know, Kephas to the to the Jews and him to the to the Gentiles. And they say, well, remember the poor, he said, which was the very thing we were committed to do. You know, so there's this sense that it's ingrained in how they're going to do their ministry, especially even as you have these Gentiles coming in. So I think, yeah, I mean, it might not be explicit, but it's certainly present, I would say, in these churches that are being grown throughout the mm. empire. Yeah. And that's where we want to be careful about, you know, the, the exegetical fallacy of argument from silence, that because uh, there isn't a specific comment on this later on, does mm -hmm. it mean it got written? No, it means that it, like like Dennis was saying, it got built in to the imagination <laughs> of the church, it got built in to the narrative of the church. So one of the questions that I would ask is, when does that narrative shift from the biblical history in the book of Acts to the church's history <laughs> over the next 2,000 years. Mm. And how that's when you really begin to see this transition from churches that are focused on caring for the poor, focused on sharing its resources. But the further out you get in mm. church history, you start beginning to see the opposite of that, the hoarding of resources, the, yeah. 
use of resources just for kind of the benefit of the wealthy. And again, that gets pointed out in the book of Acts as well about the wealthy have, you know, they're hoarding their food and while the poor are not getting any. That's why you needed Acts chapter six as a remedy to the right. uh, unequal distribution right. of food. And so what's interesting to me is how it begins to change not because of what the Bible says, but because circumstances and situation begins to change. And that's where I would mm -hmm. argue for the hermeneutic of understanding how much of that reality in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6 emerges because the church is a persecuted church at that time. Mm -hmm. The church is a church on the margins. The church is a disenfranchised church. It doesn't have the access to the power and the wealth. Right. It does right. begin to accumulate later on in the church's history. And so maybe the lessons are that we don't necessarily learn these lessons from the wealthy and the affluent, uh, which we, you know, we've seen over the last several centuries now with the church in the West, where the wealthy and the affluent and the privileged are making decisions about how wealth should be distributed versus how in the early church, it was a very different paradigm. And in the book of Acts, we see it wasn't based upon the privilege making these decisions on behalf of the poor. It was actually emergence out of the Holy Spirit, out of the whole community. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure the privilege didn't want to give up their their wealth. Uh, for oh the my goodness! Before. That's you know, human nature is human nature. But exactly. what we begin to see is actually this um, the emergence of centering the needs of the poor, centering the uh, and that hermeneutic is what changes as the church acquires more wealth and privilege. Okay, oh, so man, that, I, can I can I slip a comment a question in here, and either one of you respond to it? It seems then the key, like going from Acts two to today and you have a you have a change in church history where this passage is not lived into has a lot to do with decision making uh who is making decisions within the church and how they are so i'm trying to think like all right churches today that are not being you know it's persecution is not something that's a a great reality within our, our context um so what would you say for churches that like you know, see a spirit in Acts 2 that they feel like is is compelling, that they want to grow more closely aligned with, um, and it comes to making decisions that would be the decisions they made in Acts 2, hmm. what what helps that? What helps inform that? Hmm. I'll, I'll jump in for a minute. I Man, when Sun Chan, when you were talking, my mind went to the book of James. I mean, there's, because you see the church um, wrestle there with that very thing. I mean, you this favoritism there's a temptation to show the favoritism toward people who are wealthy so you so clearly they were in that world i mean there were people who had means in that world um yet yet james indicts them for for being tempted to play favoritism or playing favorites and and then even even having um uh, those who are wealthy be exploitative of of others so so clearly er, early on even when you started to see people who had some means to um, uh, that it, that you still had to have this address. In other words, the values that we see in Acts two are still at play, even in these diaspora churches, even in churches that are spreading out further away. Um, that's not exactly what you asked, but I'm starting to see. But you start to see that play out in those churches. I think by the time, uh, well, so the power dynamic is also built in there because the yeah. decision making that uh, a congregation has to do um, needs to be based on the folks that are getting left behind. And th this is this is a point I've tried to make in some of my own writings. We tend to think that the most powerful people ought to be the decision makers, yet the scriptures keep reminding us that it's the other way around. It's that we need to make yeah. sure that the folks who are on the margins have their voices heard because they're most likely to be left out. So that's the same thing with, I mean, just take the whole theme of widows and orphans, you know? I mean, that's, this is, that's a whole big 
big thing that's going through and James picks up on that too. Anyway, I don't want to get carried away, but I guess what I'm I'm trying to say is it's it's paying attention to the least least of these that enables the church to actually um um make healthy and and wholesome decisions. Yeah. Um, one of the phrases that I've often used is confronting evil in its proper geography. Uh, this <laughs> is the work of uh, uh, Christian social ethicist Stephen Mott. Uh, and so that if sin is found on the individual level, we address it there. If sin is and brokenness is found on the systemic structural level, that's where we address it. And I would add a third element. If sin is found in the imaginative narrative level, that's where we address it. Sure. So what I see in Acts chapter two and in other passages throughout scripture, James as, as well, what scripture is able to do is it actually addresses all three. We're the ones that usually kind of parses it out as, oh, this is just for individuals. Uh, like, you know, I was a I was a Baptist preacher at one point. And so when I preached John 316, you got to preach it about the individual. I, I talk about being a youth pastor and mm -hmm. saying to John 316, for God so loves. Of course, you got to pick out Johnny, who's the worst kid at the youth retreat. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, he's usually a deacon's kid. That's the worst kid at the <laughs> youth retreat. And we you say, Johnny. God yeah. loves you, Johnny. And you make Johnny yeah. cry. And Johnny mm -hmm. comes to faith. And the offering goes up next week because Elder Cam raised, uh, raised more money. Uh, so that's that's kind of the usual way we think about confronting sin. But, you know, John 3, 6, in, as, as we all know, is not about God so loves the individual. God so loves the world, the cosmos. And so there's different ways that the scripture addresses that we oftentimes through our kind of hyper-individualistic lens that we take in the U.S. and we interpret it through that lens and say, oh, this is just for individuals to do better at uh, without recognizing, oh, actually, this might be a, a whole church issue. This might be a societal issue. And then I would add to that at the third level, how is it our imagination, our narratives, our stories, our cultures, our worldviews, how are all of these things getting reshaped? Not just individual action and, in, uh, and social structural action, but individual and social structural imaginations. And I would say that money, again, is one of the hardest things to break through on that because we, we've embedded so much of the world's practices that it's hard for us to break through out of that. And so passages like Acts 2, like the, the passage in James, if we see it only from an individual perspective, we're missing a big part of the story. Yeah, yeah, well said. So, okay, I want to try to even bring this down to just one more kind of level of kind of concreteness here. Um, if you have church community that is like, uh, you know, that, that wants to move forward on this, that wants to say like, there's this spirit of sharing here where decision-making looks different. Um, what do you, you know, like, think of, can you give me a church, give me an example of church context here and ask how, how do you move the ball in that, right? Where if you have a church context where all the authority is within just a, a few folks, what's the challenge for that group? If you have a church where it's like, um, let's just, let's just say it's another context, like does anything come to mind here on how does, how do yeah. church communities address decision-making? How does change happen with that? <laughs> how does change happen with that? That's a big, that's a big question, but I, well, I'll yeah. give a quick couple of quick examples that I, you know, I'm not sure if we moved the needle so much, but I was at a church that, um, that made, had deacons make a budget and such, but there were some power folks in the church that could, um, would make, um, well, would assert themselves to say, we, before there would be a vote on it, they would say, no, we can't do this and you need to strike that. And so they wielded a lot of influence on how that money, how the community's money was going to get spent. And I remember sitting there thinking, 
why that person? Then I realized, well, that person has a lot of money. So consequently, they had a lot of clout in a lot of people's eyes. And they they saw them as, well, we better listen to that person's advice. I was in a different place where um, <laughs> a church I planted, as a matter of fact, when we heard somebody was struggling with the rent, we, I mean, some of our youngest people in the church said, look what Acts 2 says. Can't we find a way to pool our money to make sure that this person is not going to be hurting? And I thought, well, maybe maybe it's about size, because when it came down to it is that that uh, that smaller church that I planted was able to make a quick decision and think about how we pool our resources. Bigger churches, they don't pivot so fast. So I don't I don't know. I mean, I, you asked a great question, Scott, and I and I still find myself struggling because I, I want we 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 did well in the smaller church to pay attention to the need but we didn't have as much resources as the bigger church, right? So there's something to be said for having you know, enough numbers yeah. like we see in Acts, but to be able to pay attention, we need a mechanism that pays attention to where folks' lives are and not just listen to the, to the people who, who are able to write the biggest checks. Yeah, and I'm thinking that as that example that you gave, where yeah. I saw that was in the immigrant communities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, growing up in an immigrant church, um, you know, my, my mom being a single mom really needed help in a lot of different places. Uh, some of it was just being able to translate paperwork, right, mm-hmm. to uh, to have that translated into English. And, you know, you don't go to the local lawyer down the street. You can't afford it. You go to your church. And sometimes the pastor, who is often the most educated in these immigrant mm-hmm. congregations, are the ones that are doing that translation yeah. uh, from English into the, into the native language. Um, and certainly in terms of need, because many of the, those in that community are familiar with that need. And so some of it is just proximity, that if you're in a community that um, where you know, you've, you're an immigrant community where many are blue-collar workers or many who work in the service industry, and you share that in common, so certain communities will have more, like in the Filipina, Filipino community, you get a lot of service industry, particularly in mm. the healthcare field. Mm. And so you can kind of help each other a little bit more because you know each other's stories yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. That's where I think um, the capacity to be in community together with those that are either different or you know their stories well enough that the needs are actually more yeah. uh, evident and you're able to kind of address those needs. Mm. Yeah, well, I like that. Well said. Yeah, that's there's actually there's an example even with our own with Hyrax a larger church, but you have a couple pockets, these communities that are being very open and transparent about money, like in a way that's almost like it's it's quite surprising. Like they're going into mm-hmm. this, they're sharing about incomes, they're following this thing, Project Lazarus at the gates, or some have done it before. And it's a witness to others in our community. It's a witness. I'm mm-hmm. just trying to like keep up with this group in order to mm-hmm. kind of get a sense of how does mm-hmm. this happen. And I think there's influence that's happening there. Um, let me okay, shift to another uh, area of the Bible on money. Um, here's one. We don't have to spend too long on this, but I, I, I do think I think it's a question that runs deep in a lot of churches here. So the book of Proverbs as a whole has a lot to say about money, but there is a kind of like broader narrative that is the 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 more you give the more you will be received, the more you will receive. And that can, that's been taken in some ways to be like, hey, if you give a lot, if you're willing to sacrifice a lot, you will receive a lot materially. So here's what I'm actually interested in here. And I'm not interested in going into a conversation about like the, you know, the the spread of something called the prosperity gospel. Um, I just think in a lot of, a lot of the folks who I know who are listening in on this, uh, that's, they're not in those churches. Where I'm interested in is how we've maybe internalized this narrative just a little bit and kind of just 
what what to make of this, right? Is that if you if you give a lot, should you be expecting something back? What should that look like? Any any wisdom on this? I'll jump in quickly to talk about mm -hmm. the, kind of the framework around this. And then yeah. um, my my take on this is especially on narratives and imagination, is and that's kind of goes back to the hermeneutic. How does one see oneself in and then how does that influence the reading of the scripture? And I would say that some of the language around uh, increasing health, uh, increasing wealth, you know, prosperity, um, it assumes an exceptionalism by the reader. Uh, and you see this quite often in U.S. Christianity, where there's kind of an assumption that, I mean, again, I don't want to open this can of worms, but <laughs> that's happening right now in geopolitical sense of the word, that the U.S. sees itself in kind of this chosen exceptional position over and against other powers. Uh, and so that when it comes to wars, we're going to side here because it, it, it affirms our exceptional character. It affirms that we are the chosen people of God along with these people. So there's kind of a, a problematic um, hermeneutic that is a problematic imagination that assumes that in the scripture, when you read passages, we're the exceptional ones. And um, and therefore, the blessings that come our way are actually blessings that we deserve. Um, mm. And so that's the problematic part about chapters like Proverbs, uh, a number of even Old, past, Old Testament passages where it talks about blessing the, the, the nation of Israel, the people of God. Um, we can't assume that it's, that we're on that, we're in, we're in the same sphere or that exceptionalism, triumphalism, uh, the blessing piece is actually the best trajectory, right? Mm. Um, and so there are spaces and places where um, not being exceptional uh, or being the outcast, the marginalized, where that's more fulfilling the kingdom of God. But there are some huge assumptions we come to the passage with to say, oh, we are, uh, you know, the people of God now, we go to a church and we got saved and God chose us and all that good stuff. But then to at, to take that a step further and say, that must mean there's something exceptional about me. Mm. That must mean that my life is so exceptional that I'm going to triumph in all things. And that reads, leads to a misreading of the scripture, where yeah. if you are the exceptional triumphant person, then of course you're supposed to have blessings. And you <laughs> see wealth as a blessing. But you know, the other side of that in scripture is that wealth is not a blessing. It takes, you know, how, how does a wealthy man get through the, the you know, the camel get through the eye of a needle? That's, that doesn't sound like a blessing to me. It sounds like a curse. Sounds yes. like a curse. And so this exceptionalistic Amen. assumption that mm -hmm. we are the chosen people and therefore we, we got all this money, we got all this wealth, especially in the U.S., and that's our gift from God, that, that, that narrative doesn't fit the biblical narrative, especially the whole narrative of scripture. Oh my goodness! Well said, Sun Tan. I I think uh, you offer a real, I think, a critique of the of the so-called prosperity gospel right there, and in, in all of its forms. I I would say that there is a, a, a I don't I don't know if I want to call it a principle, but we start to see a trend in Scripture of of God blessing generosity. I mean, I would say that that there's a sense that um um uh, oh I. I mean, that Proverbs passage that you mentioned, but I, there's so many other places I think of in Second Corinthians, you know, who the one who sows sparingly, reaps sparingly, you know, so generously, reap generously. So the idea isn't like faith, you know, just being um, that I deserve to get something. That's not the point. The point is, if I can treat my resources with trust like God wants me to, 
then God's going to make sure that my needs are met. And um, this is this is the the at least that's the the hopefulness. This is this is the end of Philippians. And our, my God will supply you all, all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is not to say that God's going to give you everything you ever wanted, but that's a financial thing. It's in the context of some of some financial language of gain and loss of what Paul's talking about his life there. And he's saying, look, you guys have been really generous toward me. God's going to take care of you. And so that that kind of notion, I think, is in this scripture. If, if there's any kind of a quid pro quo, pro quo, it's about being faithful to what God has said. And that faithfulness includes generosity, not hoarding. It includes generosity. And God um, um, looks after us and provides for us. I would say it that way. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> I um I appreciate what you're saying there. I think that there's like it's a, I feel like I, what I hear is is this question being asked like what if you give, and you, and you embrace your averageness as a human being, you are much more likely to receive whatever comes out of that gift of that giving as as grace. But it's I mean more like I'm thinking about Luke, uh, in the Gospel of Luke where there's the tax collector who goes in and just mm. says like like you know what what was me? I I need your mercy to give from that place. Versus giving from a place where I think I am, you know, a special human being, it's going to, it's going to be a much, it's a much different, a much different outcome, a much different kind of spiritual maturity is at play there as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. stay, stay yeah, in Luke. Stay, oh, well, and we're still in Luke and stay in Luke for, yeah. for Zacchaeus, because here now you've got a guy who's touched by a visit from Jesus who had not been practicing a godly way of being with his resources. And then he says, I got to make reparations. I'm going to, I'm yep. going to give people back. And, and, and if anybody I cheated, I'm giving them way more, you know? So there's this sense that, that the generosity of spirit is, is really what's um, I think kind of standing out in that passage there. It's not about just the fact that he's rich, the fact that he, he made some money off of other people. And, and yeah. now there's this, the spirit of God and the presence of Jesus is helping him to see, Hey, I got to make things right. Yeah. And going to that, the, the geography of evil, right? So the geography of sin here is that for Zacchaeus, that was the place of his brokenness. That was the place where his mm. sinful attributes came out because he was exploiting the poor. He was mm. exploiting others. And it is in that place that God confronts him. And it is also in that place that mm. kind of uh, the retribution. And again, it, I, I, I would say it doesn't come out of like, oh, I'm going to be blessed now because he wasn't. Right, he wasn't right. That's right. More, you know, the, the avenue of his wealth was cut off. Uh, but he's doing it because it is what it means for him to follow exactly. Jesus. Exactly. And, and the same thing with the widow's might. There's so many biblical examples of wealth is not like a bargain you make with God, but it really is uh, your stewardship, uh, your your faithfulness, uh, right. that that's more of the indication of, of your wealth rather that's than right. was it X amount of dollars? Was it the penny? Was it the all of that? Exactly. Amen. One of the key ideas I hear emerging mm. in your in this conversation and going back and forth between both of you is this power of saying, you know, if you're thinking about giving, if you're thinking about money and wealth, your relationship to it, it is incredibly important that you pause and just know yourself, mm. know where you are, because like, mm. I think that actually makes kind of the diversity of the Bible's witness around money even more appealing because it shows how many different ways it's able to speak to us. Um, but it's going to be different to us for each of us, depending on kind of where we are. Let me go to uh, one more question from me here, and then I'm going to go to uh, the Q&A from the audience. Let's just talk about the prophets, the prophets more generally. Hmm. Um, 
when you're thinking about the profits here, right, we've got just a uh, just a direct uh, message against exploitation of the poor, against oppression. And it's this actually radically hopeful set of, you know, books and figures within scripture about the possibilities of what God can do. So as you think about the prophets and some of our takeaways from thinking about the prophets and money in the Bible, uh, what comes to mind for you? Mm -hmm. So I am, um, <laughs> I mean, when, when I'm thinking, I'm thinking right away of, of Brueggemann and prophetic imagination and some of his other, other work. I mean, it's, I think we're seeing play out in the, in the, in the Old Testament, the prophetic writings, particularly, but even in some of the uh, early prophets or in the what we might call historical books, we're seeing this, the whole way that the temptation to hoard and to use wealth in, in an exploitative ways, we see it play out. We see it when people, um, um, Nabal, you know, in his, his field and David's um, agitation with him or, or even King Ahab, when he's going to kill off somebody just to get the vineyard. I mean, there's these there's this ways that the um, that we, we we get to see in the Old Testament pretty graphically how uh, wealth can corrupt, and so the prophets have to come and provide this corrective. They have to come and say, "Well, wait a second. This is not the way it, it works." I mean, you think of passages like Isaiah fifty-eight. I mean, you exploit your workers. You're taking advantage of people. We have to set things back, set things right, and come back to the Torah. So I guess what's for me is that we we see pretty graphically. And uh, how how easy it is for the power to exploit those who don't have. Hmm. Yeah, the, I I go back to the prophets having the uh, the capacity and the willingness um, <laughs> to just confront evil in all its expressions, hmm. right? And so hmm. they will speak to the individual king and say, "This is not right." Uh, so they will have admonitions and, you know, the basic definition of prophecy is speaking the words of God. It's not like foretelling the future. It really is speaking the heart and voice of God. And so that voice of God speaking to the individual, speaking to the systems and structures and speaking to, uh, the imagination. And so, um, you know, whenever sin is evident, it, it, it always knows how to hide itself well. And one of the things the prophets do well is actually unearth the hidden sin, whether it's in the individual, the system structures, or the imagination. And I would say uh, one of the best ways that sin is able to hide the sin around money, for example, uh, hoarding and, and greed, those sins are very easy to hide in our society because there are ways to, to make it seem okay. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm earning money so that I can give to the poor. It seems harmless. But if the motivation behind that is not actually to give to the poor, but there's greed, um, I, I need to I need to have a much larger house so I can entertain other uh, rich folks. Again, it seems harmless. You can excuse that. But then what is the motivation for that? Is it the, that could be an actual motivation or there could be something behind that? What the prophets are able to do is mm -hmm. able to get to, and, and that's why the specificity of the prophets is they're addressing a particular cultural setting and getting to the heart of the sinful brokenness mm. and exposing and bringing it to the light. And, you know, we could do that as a church now in, in different ways and say, mm. um, there's a brokenness in the systems and structures of, of uh, American, American society. 
There's a brokenness in how individuals uh, uh, deal with their wealth and, and possessions. There's certainly a brokenness in how we think about money and wealth. And so the same kind of prophetic imagination, prophetic pronouncement and intrusion is maybe something we're lacking because we've gotten so used to the status quo. Uh, and that, again, is something Brueggemann talks about, which is uh, those who have wealth tend to want to maintain the status quo. And those who are without wealth tend to want to upend the status quo uh, and seek justice for injustice. And I go back to which is the heart of God. Uh, and more times than not, it is the marginalized and the poor who know the heart of God and the ones that speak uh, might need to be more the poor and the marginalized rather than the rich and the privileged. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> well, thank you for those responses. We'll switch over to uh, Q and a now. These are questions that are coming from the audience. Uh, uh, Acts 2 tells us that the church shared amongst themselves. How do we reconcile the tension in a church that gives away resources for mission? It could also be used uh, at, the at the church at home. Um, you know, it is a balance because one, now the language of missiology, of course, as many of us know, is changing, right? So missiology used to be the privileged West sending to the impoverished uh, East, South, uh, uh the outside of the West and Northern Hemispheres. Um, so that, of course, language has changed. Uh, Newbegin would have been one of the first theologians to say, actually, the spiritual impoverishment is more in the West. So we need to start sending missionaries to the West because of the spiritual impoverishment. So I would say that, that it's a real tough balance. Um, I think Acts 2 does give us a pretty good role, uh, model of that, uh, which is you know, to, uh, to be aware of the need. Right. And so I think it's kind of a, the, the, the extreme negative or uh, extreme um, uh, caricature would be a church that sends money, you know, to Africa and Asia, you know, writes a check once a year and say, oh, we're giving 20 percent of our church's income over there. And then without recognizing, actually, your very neighborhood has poor among them. Uh, you know, your very neighborhood and community, or maybe even in the church itself, you've got those who are struggling to make rent um, and to talk about, oh, we need to help black folk in Africa without actually we got to deal with our racism here in the U.S. <laughs> so it's a, it's always it always needs to be a both hand. And I think Newbegin does give us that insight of like our assumption that the help is always over there. Oftentimes the, the missiology around that has been kind of dysfunctional because it's one sided versus how do we begin to see uh, the more holistic view of the church, both in kind of the external outward, but also what's happening in our communities and even in our own neighborhoods. That's why I like Acts 2, giving that both and, right? It's caring for the church, it's worshiping in the church community, uh, it's growing the church, but it's doing it through the demonstration of the gospel, the embodiment yeah. of the of, of the values of of, uh, of generosity and, and mm. concern for the poor. Those things are embodied, and therefore that should be embodied overseas, wherever you're taking it, but it really should be also embodied in your communities, in immediate communities as well. Yeah, I I say amen. Something that came up earlier, I don't know if it was Sung Chan or you, Scott, that said it, but something about relationships. And I think there's a, maybe it was you, Sung Chan, that this, this notion of deciding or discerning how our money as a group gets used and spent, um, some of that, I guess, is based on the relationships we have with our community, with our geography, and also with with our friends around the world. I think that's one reason why, for me, being connected to a denomination is helpful, 
because in some ways I don't know how to discern those needs that are, are far away. There's somebody who's on this call that's on this Zoom. I happen to see his name. We share the same first name. He's some one of those people that helps me to know like what's going on in other parts of the world. And and that's so for me, it's like if we have these relationships, then we have these, we have better knowledge about how to give. I, I was seeing your question as a how kind of a question. So I can make yeah. those discernments with with, um, with knowledge based on some relationships of people who are closest to the to the issues at hand. Okay, so let me go into this question here. Uh, is there a difference now uh, between exploiting others with your money and indulging yourself with, with money? I'll read one more time. Is there a difference between exploiting others with your money and indulging yourself uh, with money? And how it means this is really, I mean, last this in our previous session, we looked at the concept of luxury and how we we tend oh. to not think critically about luxury and what kind of effects does that have on us. Um, so I think this is really a question getting at is there kind of like how, how do you discern what's going on with the use of your money, especially as you're thinking about money that you use on yourself? I'll take the first part of the question, which is how money can be exploitative exploitative even in a passive way right and so this is something that i'm working on right now because i'm seeing mm. this in actually seminary education i mean i'm going to just do a quick discursus on seminaries and christian colleges uh and there's uh, some work that's been done called on dysfunctional capitalism which uh the basic idea there is that capitalism in early stages you had a very direct connection between the beneficiaries of capitalism. So if you had a company, those in the company were, uh, if the company did well, the, uh, the, the laborers got the benefit of it, right? So the company grows, the laborers, the owners of the company uh, were the ones that actually made the, the money and the, uh, the, the workers got the benefit. Uh, over the course of time, you introduce another layer of, uh, within the economy, which is the shareholders. And when you have the shareholders, you create um, a, a system and structure that benefits those who are not the direct producers of the economy. So now when the shareholders are the main beneficiaries, the executives of that company want to appease the shareholders more than to help the producers of that economy. In which case, what you will end up with is that the uh, an executive comes in, you see this at General Electric a few years ago, an executive comes in, fires four or 5,000 employees, mm. which obviously doesn't benefit the producers of that company, but what did it do? It raised the stock prices. And so the shareholders are benefiting. So what it created was a disconnect between uh, the, the wealth and health and well-being of society from those who are actually working for that society. So it creates a leisure class, it creates a a level of shareholders, et cetera, uh, who can benefit from uh, being idle and also actually benefit from the oppression uh, and the um, and the marginal further marginalizing of those who are who are working. Um, so we see that in I mean, and I'm trying to relate this now to kind of the current state of u s. Christianity. Uh, but you can see how even if we're participating in a system like that, um, and, you know, I, I have a 401k and um, I have actually one of the reasons I joined the covenant is that it has one of the most robust pension plans <laughs> of all the denominations out there. Um, but when I think about it, I said, OK, um, it, how does that disconnect me from the places of need? 
because now my self-interest says um, I want my stock prices to go up un unabated, right? Just keep skyrocketing without realizing sometimes that means 4,000 people are going to lose their jobs because stock prices go up when you when you cut the labor force. So now, now I'm kind of in this conundrum. Uh, and those are the things that I don't think we think about, which is to say that sometimes when our money is being generated through idleness, um, and, that, and frankly, that is investment. Investment is a form of idleness where your money works for you. You don't work for the money. Now, on one level, American society has elevated that as kind of the holy grail of this is what good people are able to get to. We want to have a healthy 401k, all that stuff. But to actually begin to think through a little bit more biblically, theologically, uh, ecclesially, it's like, is that necessarily the best thing? So I, I don't have an answer, obviously. You know, I'm I'm not selling off my 401k. I keep investing in my covenant pension fund. Uh, but I'm I'm I have to kind of start asking some of those questions of where is my heart in this? Uh, how am I really processing what it means to be a Christian when so much wealth can be accumulated through idleness and I keep uh being a part of that system? Yeah. Uh so someone from the covenant said. Uh, we rely uh, often on folks who are smart or wealthy to be kind of board members within our denomination or conferences or just in our churches, like often, you know, a valued member of someone who is uh, who's on a, a board of uh, counselors will be someone with financial expertise. And that can make a lot of sense. Um, how do we get people, though, who are on the margins uh, to be part of the board? And what does it look like to like, you know, I think this may be a change in mm -hmm. imagination to understand a different sense of value and perspective. So any, yeah. any thoughts on that? And I would <laughs> just say a, possibly read, read might from the margins to start. Well, so keep going. that's a good, that's a good start. But I, I just had this conversation yesterday with somebody just yesterday. I, I, how, I don't know how, I mean, I'll be honest with you because um, it's, it's not done. I, it's a desire that I would have, but honestly, the people who make those powerful decisions, they keep perpetuating it, so I don't really know how to break that. Um, I would, I can, I can give names and suggest because I sit on some boards and I can sit and suggest names. But I, I honestly think people are looking to their peer group all the time, and then they're looking for folks who are who are wealthier to get on the board. It takes, it does take a reworking of the imagination. I, I mean, so how? I don't have an easy answer for how, but I would love to get somebody to speak into who has um, who can get the voice of some folks in these places. To, to yeah. break it up a little bit. We need to hear from more people. Thank you. Yeah. I've been on a few national boards where mm -hmm. one board was almost all business folks mm -hmm. and you know major donors. Another was more mixed. And the mm -hmm. other was actually all um, church folk. Mm -hmm. uh, so no money, but you know, kind of experience <laughs> in church. And it's the mixed board that was probably the yeah. most effective. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, that board actually was very intentional to say, okay, we want to make sure that we have uh, three pastors on the board, but we also want to make sure that we have two accountants on the board. I want to make sure that there are three mm. major donors on the board. So they were very intentional about mm. kind of like, uh, we want to have some kind of mix that they were very intentional about. Yeah. Um, I would say, I actually wrote about this in my book, uh, Many Colors, where I talk about being at a church, a covenant church, actually, that was very um, socioeconomically mixed. And what I said is some of it is not the problem of finding people for the board. Mm. It's what we think boards should be doing, yeah. right? So yeah, the example that I gave is like you have an immigrant father who works 20 hours a day, you know, six days a week. And one night a week, he's going to close down his business to come to a board meeting. Mm. Now, his expectation is not to sit in a three-hour board meeting talking about what color should the carpet be. 
or how tall should our fence be that blocks off the neighborhood? That's not what someone who's taking, shutting down his business, you know, fighting his way through traffic and fighting his way through a different language to try to be on a board. He's there to pray. He's there to lead in different ways. He's not there to, you know, figure out the color of the carpet and the height. So yeah, maybe you have a board that handles that piece of it. But really to think about what, if you're really looking at leadership, then you've got to have two or three folks like, you know, like my mom who, you know, wouldn't care what the color of the carpets were, but she will pray that carpet to a nub. And she did <laughs> She, she would kneel before that carpet and that carpet will be worn down because of her prayers. And that's where I kind of think about, we have to rethink the imagination of what leadership looks like. Yeah. Amen. Well said. <laughs> All right. Let's go into this. Probably be our last question. Um, is the church called, uh, this This is a broader level question, but it relates certainly to money and wealth. Is the church called to work to shift systematic wealth inequalities and structures and government policy? My my quick answer is is yes, but I but it's loaded when we say work, because for some folks that means that um, that we have to be the ones who create the policies. I think sometimes we provoke the changes in the policies. So I would say, um, yeah, we're working to do that. But partly first, I think, well, maybe not first, but we need to be uh, providing this alternate way of seeing and doing things rather than taking our cues from from the way that the government has operated all the time. So one thing is so we learn what communal life looks like for us, and then we can help to advocate for those changes on broader levels. So, yeah, that's the way I think of it. Yeah, in scriptures, you see the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, and how those are the three ways that, in, in, at least in kind of the, the bigger picture of the mm, Christian community mm, I like that. or the, the, the religious community, the, the biblical community, uh, they bring change. Now, what I would say is that we're pretty good at the priestly in that we kind of talk about, again, individual salvation and individual discipleship around money, around power. Uh, we, we're, we're not great at it, but we're, you know, we, we spend a lot of time on it. Let's put it that way. Um, we think we've gotten good at the kingly part, where we put good Christian people into office and we vote so that the kingly office is filled with good Christian. Yeah, we're not very good at that, to be honest with you. Yeah, we don't really handle that very well. But the third part, I think, is where we need to maybe leverage a little bit more, which is the prophetic office of the church. Hmm. That how do we as the church, with the privileges that we have as a church, uh, with the power that we have, and also the voices that we can bring in, hmm. how do we speak prophetically into our systems and structures? Uh, not as the king who can run the systems and structures, not as the priest, or uh, as I think it was Rodney Stark who described it as, uh, Rodney Claff who described it as, oftentimes we're the chaplains on the Titanic. We know this thing is about to hit an iceberg, but there's nothing we can do except just kind of stand in the back and you know give a blessing. Uh, so the priestly and the kingly office, it has a value, but I think we've lost the prophetic value of the church, which is to be that prophetic voice in the community. I feel like going off of the, I'm going to add my own question here. We've got a minute left. Uh, I feel like going off of the prophets, going off of trying to provoke a different way of thinking. Can you give us something to finish with? That's like, was there something simple, something simple about the gospel that makes you want something better for your community, <laughs> for your world? And I'm just like, go back to like the basics of the gospel. Is there something simple about it? I'll, I'll be quick. So I just wrote a book, <laughs> just came out, a book on humility. And um, and so for me, that's, if we could reclaim that value as a Christian identity marker, I think it would 
it would um, impact how we make uh, decisions as a church, how we live as people together. We would, our eyes would be attuned to the needs of others in, in fresh ways. So for me, that's, that's a simple part of the gospel that I want to uh, have us reclaim. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's, that's, that's really, really powerful reminder mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. too. Um, I would think about like the generosity of grace mm -hmm. and that um, we, we're, we've been stingy around grace um, for a number of different ecclesial mm -hmm. theological reasons, stingy I think we kind of made grace into mm -hmm. a stingy, limited resource. Wow. But what is the generosity of grace? Um, and, I, and, and and the side item on this is that the side uh, the side uh, perspective on this is I actually learned that from my uh, my dear Native American brothers uh, and brothers and sisters, but mainly Mark Charles, who I've co-authored a book with. Um, I learned so much about the generosity of grace from from Mark. And that's because his voice and his experience is very different from mine. Mm. Um, and, and so that's another piece of it where I learned this very important lesson, but I learned by being in a very close uh, covenant community relationship with someone who has a very different backend from my own. Um, Dennis and Soong Chang, I just want to say, I think mm. the conversation between you both tonight has been a reminder of our, our need for, I think me, others, the audience would say this as well, for humility and for grace, and to mm. hope that God will continue to do something more, and that we can be reading the Bible to find some inspiration to yeah, see what amen. God would have for us. So thank you both for being with amen. us. Thank amen. you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. thank you. Okay, see you.